We've been doing during this uh, time when we've been studying the fruits of the Spirit in uh, our sermon series, we've been talking about, or we've been encouraging everyone to pray a daily prayer. Um, we're calling it the John Stott prayer because John Stott was a guy who uh, wrote this prayer and, and uh, prayed it every day himself. And, uh, you know, written out prayers are not a replacement for uh, praying what's on your own heart and praying your own thoughts and things to God, but sometimes they can be an additional help to us in our prayers and can have some really uh, good things to say in these uh, kind of pre-written prayers. So, so we've been saying this prayer together each week, and as well as encouraging us all to say it every day. So you can pick up one of these little cards if you don't have one yet. They're back on the info tables back there. But let's all do this now together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that this day I may live in your presence and please you more and more. Lord Jesus, I pray that this day I may take up my cross and follow you. Holy Spirit, I pray that this day you will fill me with yourself and cause your fruit to ripen in my life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Amen. So I want to say a little bit before we start into the Word today, I want to say a little bit about that video we saw um, about the persecuted church. Uh, in the summer of 1994, I spent uh, most of the summer in Pakistan working with uh, Christians there and, uh, and saw for myself exactly what that video was talking about, how the Christian community in Pakistan is treated as second-class citizens. And, uh, and it's, uh, it's interesting that the kind of violent persecution that gets headlines and stuff where they come in and they, they beat someone or they kill someone, that really doesn't happen nearly as often as what they portrayed there, which is the daily experience for Christian people in many parts of the world, including Pakistan, where uh, just the prejudice and the, the, uh, the, the um, it's not exactly racism, but that, that uh, uh, the feelings against them and the inability of, uh, for them to get good jobs or get into good schools or to be treated equally uh, in their country. And a place like Pakistan, I don't know what the up-to-date stats are, um, but when I, when I went there, I knew the stats. It was uh, about 1% Christian, which sounds like a pretty small number, except that there was at that time 125 million people in Pakistan, which means that there's one and a quarter million Christians. Um, so there are churches in just about every town that you go to in Pakistan. You'll find a church and you'll find Christian people. Um, however, they are being treated very poorly by the people around them. So that's what we need to be praying for is those, those people who are um, being discriminated against for their faith and the temptation to abandon their faith and just switch to the majority religion is great because there's all kinds of advantages from a uh, economic standpoint if they do that. Okay, so our series right now is uh, from the book of Galatians. Uh, we're in Galatians chapter 5, where we've been studying the fruits of the Spirit. And uh, this is uh, Paul's uh, letter to the churches in the region of Galatia. And we've just heard a couple of minutes ago that the fruit of the Spirit is not a mango, right? The fruit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Uh, but here's the thing is that a mango actually is a fruit. 
And so we can understand what we mean when we say that uh, a mango is a fruit. But what, what, what do we mean when we say that love, joy, and peace are fruit? And uh, what it means is that these things are the things that will grow in us when we are indwelled by the Holy Spirit of God. See, when a person uh, first puts their trust in Jesus and becomes a Christian, the Holy Spirit comes to live inside us. And we are immediately saved from the penalty for our sins. And that is when uh, we are uh, saved from eternal death in hell, and instead we are destined for eternal life. We will spend eternity in the restored creation without any of the effects of sin around us. So when we become Christians, uh, our eternal destiny is set immediately. Uh, But that's not all that happens when we put our faith in Jesus. There are several other big realities that happen at that time, and I just want to mention two of them uh, this morning. Uh, One is that uh, we are given the privilege of serving in God's kingdom. Each of us as Christians have been given jobs to do in bringing about God's will in this life. Uh, the, The Bible says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So there are good things that God wants you to be doing. He wants you to be making a difference in this world as a do-gooder. But what kinds of good things are we going to do? What kinds of things should we be doing? Well, last week we had a whole message on the idea of goodness. And, uh, and, and in that uh, message we defined goodness, and we defined it like this. We said, goodness is wanting, knowing, and doing what leads to God's glory and human flourishing. So any actions that you take that meet that definition of goodness, that bring about God's glory and human flourishing, that is, human, um, human thriving. There are many, many specific good deeds that we can do that will bring glory to God and, and promote human thriving. And I'm just going to mention two of the big categories that are emphasized in the Bible. First one from the book of James, it says, Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Now, widows and orphans are singled out here because they are generally the uh, least powerful and most vulnerable uh, people in our society. Many places in the Bible, it's actually a threesome, the alien, the fatherless, and the widow that are talked about together as the vulnerable people in our society that we need to be uh, looking after and caring for. And, And of course, there's also many other people that don't fit those categories that also have needs, but the point is that we must show concern for the people around us and their needs, and especially for those who are most vulnerable and powerless in our society. The second category of good works that I want to mention this morning is uh, from one of Jesus' very last teaching sessions before he went back to the Father. And here's what he said. He said, all authority on heaven and, in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. So making disciples and teaching of them about the gospel is the most important thing that Jesus and God expects from us today. 
And we see that we are asked both to baptize people, that is, we are to encourage new people to become Christians, to convert to, to Christianity, and then we are to teach them to obey all the things that God has taught us. So when we become Christians, our eternal destiny is changed from punishment in hell to reward in heaven. And we are given the privilege of serving God and doing good works, bringing Him glory and promoting human thriving. And there's one more thing that happens to us when we become Christians that I want to talk about this morning, and that is when we put our faith in Jesus and the Holy Spirit comes to indwell us, a process of transformation begins in our lives. It's not, uh, it's not an instant thing. We are fallen creatures. We are not what God made us to be. We are prone to selfishness and sin. The Bible says that people love darkness rather than light. But when we become Christians, there's not an instant transformation that rids us of all of our sinful desires. We're still selfish, we are impatient, we are unloving, we bring dissension rather than peace, we're unkind, we're ungentle, we lack self-control. All those things that the, the Spirit wants to bring about in our lives, we are lacking. But the next verse, after that list of the fruits of the Spirit, the next verse there in Galatians 5 says, since we live by the Spirit... Let us keep in step with the Spirit. And when we keep in step with the Spirit, when we live according to the ways of the Holy Spirit, then we will be slowly transformed to reflect more and more His fruit in our lives. And our lives will reflect more and more the character of God Himself, especially love, joy, peace, and the rest. And that's the point of this whole two-month sermon series, is to help us all to understand what it is that God is trying to do in us, what kinds of character traits He's trying to produce in our lives, and to encourage us all to cooperate with Him and to work uh, toward becoming more like God in our character. And the fruit that we're discussing today is faithfulness. Um, and since the fruit of the Spirit are, first of all, character traits of God Himself, we're going to learn mostly today about God's faithfulness, and then we will see how we can apply that same kind of faithfulness to our own lives. The Bible declares that God is faithful many times. It's one of the most uh, common uh, and uh, things that it teaches us about God. One of the, one of the most emphatic statements about it uh, is in the book of Numbers. It also helps us to see what we mean by faithfulness. And here it is. It says, God is not human that he should lie, not a human being that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? So what do we learn about God's faithfulness here? God does not lie. Every word he speaks is true. You can trust anything God says to be true. He does not change his mind. He doesn't say, oh, I was thinking that I wanted this one thing, but I changed my mind. I want to do something else instead. No, God never gets new information that changes his, his thinking. Um, and he does, he does not speak and then not act, and he never fails to fulfill a promise. And that is what it means to be faithful. When a commitment is made, it is kept. And there is never a reason to doubt 
his word. This really fits right in with what we saw about God's goodness last week, right? God is good. He always wants, knows, and does what leads to his own glory and to human flourishing. And because he always knows what will lead to these goals, he never needs to change his mind and reorient his plan. His plan is perfect from the beginning. And that means that when God plans to save sinners, he will save sinners. Speaking about his promise of salvation, the biblical book of Hebrews says this, it says, because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, and that's us, the heirs of the promise, he confirmed it with an oath. It says, God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. And that really is one of the big takeaways that I think we should have from this whole message on faithfulness and the faithfulness of God. God is faithful. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. So be greatly encouraged. He has said that he will save us from our sins when we confess our sins and put our faith in Jesus' death as a payment for our sin, and he will do it. Even if we are not very good at following him after we've become Christians. Because the Bible also says this, it says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. So statements like that should be very reassuring for us. And God spoke these words and many others to us through the prophets in order to encourage us to trust him. But sometimes when God really wants to make a point as strongly as he can, then he asks his prophets not simply to speak his message or to write his message. Sometimes he wants his prophets to act out his message in some way and demonstrate the message that God wants his people to hear. And one of those prophets who is asked to act out the message of God's faithfulness was Hosea. And uh, the book of Hosea, uh, the very first verse starts like this. It says, The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, son of Beeri, during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and during the reign of Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, king of Israel. That, well, that verse isn't a very exciting verse. Not a, lot to, <laughs> not a whole lot to learn in that particular verse right there. But the reason I decided to include that verse in the, in the message this morning is because this verse is, is a timestamp. He is giving the date, the way dates were given back then, of when this happened. And what that shows us is that this is not just some story that somebody made up along the way. This is, this is historical events. This is real. The prophet Hosea really lived during this time period that he mentions here and really did the things that he's talking about in his book. Um, verse 2, when the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, go, marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. 
For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. So he married Gomer, daughter of Dibliam, and she conceived and bore him a son. Now, that's a surprising verse. If I was Hosea and the Lord spoke to me and told me something like that, I'd be thinking, yeah, you know, God, maybe I could write a really strongly worded prophetic letter instead. Or maybe I could uh, preach a really powerful sermon on the topic. God, are you really sure that this is what you want me to do? Now, I don't know if Hosea actually had those thoughts. The Bible just tells us that God told him to do this, and he did it. So, what do you think is the message that God is going to bring to his people through Hosea? What's he going to act out? Maybe the message would be that when Gomer acted according to her tendency and was unfaithful to Hosea, then God would tell him, okay, now divorce her and leave her destitute as a warning to the people so that if they are unfaithful to me, I will also uh, leave them. So if they are unfaithful to God, I will be justified in leaving them just as you are justified in leaving your cheating wife. Maybe Hosea thought that was what was going to happen. We don't know uh, that Hosea knew how this thing was going to end. But here's the next part of the story. It worked out just the way that God said it, uh, God and Hosea anticipated that it would work out. Uh, we're, not, we're not given uh, much of the details here. It was probably actually a little bit worse than what Hosea thought it was going to work out. But uh, anyway, by the end, Gomer ended up leaving her husband and her children and getting herself into some kind of slavery. And God's next instructions to Hosea come in chapter 3, where it says, The Lord said to me, Go, show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. And the raisin cake thing, that's some kind of thing that they would do in their worship of the idols, apparently they had some kind of a offerings of raisin cakes. So then it says, I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and a lethic of barley. So does Gomer come back to Hosea and ask him to take her back? Nope. Hosea has to go out and find her. And when he finds her, it costs him to get her back. The monetary price he, uh, that he paid is mentioned here, but that was just the beginning of what it cost Hosea to bring her back. What about the shame that Hosea felt? Uh, how do you think it felt for him to go to that man who now owned his wife and pay him money to get the wife back? How do you think it looked in society? Do you think they had a great marriage? At that point, I think when they got back together, everything was happy and smiles. The cost to Hosea of Gomer's adultery and taking her back was large. So is there a lesson about God in that too? Of course there is. In order for God to save his people from their sin and remain faithful to them, he paid the highest price. He sent Jesus to die at the hands of unfaithful men. And we mocked him, we spit in his face, we tortured him, and we executed him. 
and we continue to behave unfaithfully to our Savior. And yet, when we behave like Gomer, God will behave like Hosea. God has promised us his love and his salvation. And he wanted us to understand his faithfulness to that promise. And so he told us about it over and over again. And he had his prophet Hosea live it out. So that we can trust in the faithfulness of God even when we fail. When we choose to live out the fruit of the flesh instead of the fruit of the Spirit, God does not reject us. If we are faithless, He remains faithful, for He cannot disown Himself. That doesn't mean there's no consequences for sin in our lives, but it does mean that our failure to live up to our high calling will not cause God to rescind His salvation. He remains faithful. So we see that the Scripture teaches God's faithfulness to His promises very clearly. But sometimes we have a hard time trusting God's promises. And one of the biggest reasons why we sometimes can't trust God's promises is that uh, we look around us in the world and we, it doesn't look like God is fulfilling the promises that He has made. And so we see specific instances of things happening that look like He's not fulfilling His promises. Now, if it seems to you like God has failed to keep a promise, there's two big questions that you should be asking. First, did God really promise that? And then second, has God really failed to keep that promise? So let's talk about each of those two questions. Did God really promise to do the thing that it seems to you He has failed to do? Um, a lot of the time, we think that God has promised something, but He actually hasn't. Um, God is not faithful to fulfill all the promises that He didn't actually make. Now, there are several common categories of, of errors or mistakes that we make in our thinking that when we think something is a promise of God, but it's actually not. Uh, first one is sometimes we confuse a principle with a promise. So some of the clearest examples of this come from the book of Proverbs. I picked out a couple of the Proverbs here. It's, uh, first one says, One whose heart is corrupt does not prosper, and one whose tongue is perverse falls into trouble. The second proverb says, Even fools are thought wise if they keep silent and discerning if they hold their tongues. Now, promises are always fulfilled 100% of the time, but principles state just kind of general truths about life. And both of these proverbs teach principles that are generally true. Generally speaking, uh, someone who has a corrupt heart is not going to prosper. But, you know, we've all seen people who lie and cheat and steal and seem to prosper pretty well. Um, there are exceptions to the rule. And, of course, uh, it also says that uh, even if we uh, don't know anything and we're a fool, we will be, everybody will think you're wise if you keep your mouth shut. Well, that's not always true. Sometimes your actions can demonstrate your foolishness uh, even if you don't say anything. So both of these kinds of things are not promises that we can guarantee 100%. They're principles. So has God failed to honor the th these things? No, these are not promises. 
Another common misunderstanding that leads us to think God has failed to keep a promise is when we fail to notice that the promise is actually conditional. For instance, in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he tells people not to worry about their physical needs. He says, God takes care of the birds and the flowers, he'll take care of you too. Here's what he says, uh, so do not worry, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. So the conditional part of that is there at the end where he says, seek first his kingdom, and then God will take care of all your physical needs. But if you're not seeking first the kingdom of God, if your priorities are messed up and you're not thinking about godly things, then God has not promised that we might not go hungry. Another kind of misunderstood promise is when God promises something in the Bible, but is promised to a specific person or a group of people at a particular time and place, and not to you. And in Genesis, the good example of that is in Genesis where God makes some promises to Abraham. He says, I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. The whole land of Canaan, where you now reside as a foreigner, I will give you as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants. That is absolutely a promise of God. However, God has not promised that you will have many children and many offspring, or that God will give you the land of Canaan. This is a promise that was for Abraham. And most of the promises in the Bible, actually, are made to specific people at specific times. Does that mean that none of those promises are valid for us? No. Uh, sometimes a promise that is made about the way that God will deal with a particular people uh, is valid for anyone who's in a similar situation um, to the people that he has promised. And these promises can be applied to ourselves when we are in a sufficiently similar situation. Uh, sometimes they're like the promise of Abraham, it was for the him alone, sometimes they're more broad. So this, this next uh, example that I want to talk about, I want to talk about this example because this is actually... Uh, according to, uh, you know, the Bible app that's on everybody's phones, uh, they track which verses are searched for on their app. And every year they, they, uh, they let people know these are the most popular verses in the Bible, the ones that most people are looking up. So this is the most popular verse in the Bible for several years running. It's not John 3.16. It is Jeremiah 29.11. You might not know the reference, but you know the verse. It says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. So is this a promise that we can claim for ourselves? Can we trust that God does have good plans to prosper us and not to harm us? Or was this promise made only to specific people at a specific time? Well, the context tells you. The context will tell you. And if you know the context of Jeremiah, or at least if you just read the rest of the chapter and see what's, uh, what's happening there in the chapter, it'll, it'll t uh, clue you in here. So when we, when we read this chapter, we see that um, what's happening here is this uh, is part of a prophetic letter 
that God asked Jeremiah to write to the Jews who had survived uh, the invasion in which their nation had been conquered by the Babylonians, and then they had been hauled off into forced exile in Babylon. And while they're there, Jeremiah is still back in Jerusalem, and God says to Jeremiah, write this letter and send it to those people who have been taken away into exile in Babylon. And God was telling them in this letter to get used to their new normal because they're going to be in exile for a long time. But, he says, don't give up hope. Don't despair because God has not given up on his people. So here is the the well-known verse uh, along with some of the context of what comes right before and right after it. Here it is. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart." Now, that promise was actually fulfilled. The the exact details of it were fulfilled in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah. You can read about that in the Bible when the Babylonian exile did end and the people did come back to Jerusalem. Um, Now, none of us experienced a Babylonian invasion of our land, and none of us were forced into exile to live in the land of our conquerors. So, should we throw out our coffee mugs and inspirational posters that have this verse on them? Maybe not quite so fast. Uh, While the historical context of most of the chapter might make us think that this is a specific promise like the one given to Abraham only for those particular people at that time, um, the context right after the promise here sounds pretty general and sounds like God is making a broad promise of the way he will respond to his people. Let me read that again. It says, Then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Is that true only for those people back then? No, these are are read like really general statements about the way that God relates to his people. So if we call on him and come and pray, will he not listen to us? Of course he will. And if we seek him with all our hearts, will we not find him? We will. And if we are members of God's people and we are Christians, and if God does indeed have plans for our lives for good hope and a future. So yes, we can claim these promises. Even though they were given specifically by the prophet Jeremiah to a specific group of people, they do apply more broadly and generally to the people of God. So, as God caused those things to be recorded in the Bible, we too can be encouraged by these promises now, just as God's people were long ago. Now, we're talking about this because uh, we're looking at times when it seems like God has not been faithful to His promises. And we've seen that sometimes it seems that God is unfaithful because we think He has promised something that He hasn't actually promised. But there's another kind of misunderstanding that we sometimes think God has failed to keep His promises, uh, but actually we are correct that God promised something, but we are wrong to think that He's not fulfilling the promise. 
Now, one of the most common reasons for that is that uh, God's timing is often very different from our timing. We see that God has promised something, and we look around and we say, I don't see it. It doesn't look like God's keeping His promise. He's failing. No, God is, He will keep His promise in His own time. Most of the time, uh, we don't know how long it's going to be. The people in Jeremiah's day, He told them, 70 years, the exile will be ended, you'll be able to return to Jerusalem. We're not usually given that kind of a time frame. And, and we don't like to wait to see. But that's what we have to do. We just have to wait for God to fulfill His promise. Those people had to wait 70 years. That's a long time. It's hard to be patient, and so we think that God has failed. But I assure you, God will not fail to keep His promise. Another kind of misunderstanding is when we simply don't understand how God is keeping His promises. Sometimes the fulfillment of the promise looks a lot differently than we think it's going to look. And uh, here's an example of that. The Bible tells us, No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, He will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Now, God has promised to limit our temptation so that uh, it will only be things that we can bear, and He has promised to provide a way out of the temptation. But sometimes, boy, those temptations seem very strong. This, this has got to be beyond what I can bear. This is, I don't see any way out of this temptation. He doesn't promise that we won't be tempted, and He doesn't promise the temptation won't be tempting. But He does promise that we are not slaves to sin, and that with His help we can endure any temptation we face, even when we have the juiciest piece of gossip that we just really got to tell somebody about, or, or even when it would be so easy to just tell a little lie and get out of trouble, or even when that, you know, that pornography is right there on your phone, so easy, so tempting. But God is faithful, and He will always provide a way out, even though it seems to us, man, God's not withholding temptation from me at all. But God is faithful. God is faithful. He keeps His promises, and we can always trust what He says. And as we are transformed by His Spirit, we too will learn to be faithful. We'll learn to be faithful to God, faithful to our friends and families, and faithful in all that we do. We talked earlier about the idea that we have been given jobs to do by God as part of our salvation. That's another place where we are called to be faithful. And as we um, grow in the fruit of the Spirit, we will be more and more faithful to do the things that God asks us to do. As we conclude here, I just want to uh, ask you to reflect a little bit on, uh, on, on faithfulness as it grows in your own life. So we've talked about the faithfulness of God and seen what it's like for God to be faithful. But how does that faithfulness translate into our own lives and into specific areas of our lives? How would your life be different if you were faithful at work? Or how would, you go, how would your life be different if you were faithful in your marriage? Or how would your life be different if you were faithful with your friends? 
and faithful in all areas of your lives. God calls us to be faithful, and through the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, He enables us to grow in faithfulness, to become more like His own faithfulness. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for being faithful to us and for all of the promises that You have made that... Uh, can encourage us in our lives. And Lord, I pray that we would learn to rely more and more on your faithfulness and that we would be becoming more and more faithful people. Lord, I ask these things in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.